0: Greetings, friends and fiends. This is Flood from the XV Planets podcast, and tonight I'm sitting down with Courtney Swihart and Aaron Deese from Small Town Monsters. Guys, thanks so much for joining us today, and why don't you tell us a little bit about what we can expect from Small Town Monsters in 2024, because it sounds like it's going to be a wicked good year.
1: So, um, for the start of the year here, February through March 2nd, at 7pm, I believe, we are running our Kickstarter for 2024 titles, um, which is Lost Contact, On the Trail of Bigfoot, The Ancients... Dogman Territory and Cryptid Goatman with the bonus stretch goal of uh, Okapogo, the creature of Lake Okanagan.
0: Okanagan?
1: I Okanagan.
0: Cur- cursed Waters, creature of Lake Okanagan.
1: Yes. And then we have um, Monster Fest coming in June 28th and 29th here in Canton, Ohio, where you can come meet some of your favorite podcasters two of which are right here on the stream with me today (laughs) we also have um books coming out including hunting grounds by mr aaron deese we have unexplained tv coming this spring which hopefully you will find on your favorite uh streaming service here very quick as its own channel and podcasts movies series and so much more
0: as we have come to expect from our wonderful Small Town Monsters crew. Now, don't forget to check out the XV Planets podcast feed on March 7th, 2024, for an extended interview with Courtney and Aaron here. Guys, thanks again so much for popping in, and I will see you all in July.
1: XV Planets is part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network.
0: Nestled in northeastern Utah is a 7,000 square mile area of land with elevations ranging from 5,000 to 10,000 feet above sea level. It's a stunning landscape, fertile with natural resources and a rich history of ancient humans. Long before European settlers moved in and began to take the land for themselves, Native American tribes flourished in these lands, living in harmony with nature. But as time moved on, the lands became heavy with strife and suffering, and eventually soaked with blood. Settlers and explorers eventually clashed with the native tribes, and themselves, as the lands became highly sought after for their abundant resources and strategic placement for trade and travel. The lack of humanity became more and more apparent as settlers brought their problems with them to these once peaceful lands. Greed, betrayal, murder, these are only some of the human elements that began to cast a shadow over this vast horizon. And that may be exactly why this area is said to be one of the most consistently active paranormal hotspots in the entire world, with activity ranging from UFOs and poltergeists to shapeshifters and cryptids. I'm speaking, of course, about the Uinta Basin, known today as being the home of Skinwalker Ranch. In July of 2023, the XV Planets field team traveled to Utah for a five-day camping trip in one of the strangest locations in North America. And while the ranch is certainly worth noting, I can promise you, it's not just the ranch, it's the whole of the Uinta Basin that is steeped in high strangeness. Welcome to XV Planets. Greetings, friends and fiends, and welcome back to Season 4 of XV Planets, The podcast where we don't just talk about the paranormal, we put boots on the ground and pursue it in the field. Transmitting from the Black Lodge, as always, I am your host, Flood. And as always, I am very excited to be back here to dive further into the unexplained, the highly strange, and everything in between with you all. And strange is definitely a choice word for this next exploration I'll be sharing with you. Tonight, we are finally going to dig into Utah's Uinta Basin. Pun definitely intended. But first, a few brief updates. Up top, I want you to be aware that Season 4 will be coming out in chunks. There are four major investigations I'll be focusing on this season, and that will make up the bulk of the episodes, but in between those individual series I do have some special content lined up for the main feed, and a cascade of creepy things coming down the Patreon feed this season as well. For instance, between the investigative episodes these first couple of months, we'll be hosting a pair of authors and artists who are aiming to build a database for entities encountered in realms of altered states of consciousness a very special guest to help us catch up on the state of UAP disclosure, and as a bonus episode, here in just a few days, you'll get to hear my interview with Courtney Swihart and Aaron Deese to hear what's coming up from the Small Town Monsters crew this year. Also, there is a good possibility that you'll be hearing my voice on a few other shows not related to XV Planus. so be sure to keep your eyes and ears open, and the best way to keep track is through social media sites. However, if you really want to keep up to date, follow the XV Planus Instagram that I personally manage and keep things pretty up to date on the news front. Be sure to hang around for some more updates and announcements on the back end of the episode. Okay, I think that's it for now. Let's get to the weird, shall we? In July of 2023, a small group of the XV Planet's field team made the long journey out to the infamous Uinta Basin in northeastern Utah, just past the Colorado border, to spend five days camping in one of the most consistently active paranormal hotspots in North America. For those of you who already have Uinta Basin in your paranormal wheelhouse, I need to stop you right there. Though we will be mentioning it from time to time... This is not a series on Skinwalker Ranch. Rather, this is an episode on the history of the Uinta Basin, a brief overview of what makes the place so special on a geological level, a very small recap of the big load of fugal years. After this episode, the bulk of this three to four episode arc will focus on the discussions the team had after our five-day stay at the UFO Valley campground. But let me be clear here, the reason we're not making a Skinwalker series is that other podcasts, journalists, film, and television media giants have already done it to death. If you want to get into ranch territory, I'd highly suggest looking up Astonishing Legends, or last podcast on the left's respective multi-part series, to get the detailed history on why this area became famous specifically over the last several decades, or even indulge in the horrid secret of Skinwalker Ranch series on the History Channel. Uh. Or not. I don't know. But no, this isn't a Skinwalker Ranch series because it's not just the ranch people. It's the whole of the Uinta Basin. I think the ranch might have a lensing effect going on just because so many people have put an emphasis on it and applied their own consciousnesses to it, somewhat like an egregore effect taking place in paranormally fertile ground, and that's why most documented cases seem to pop up connected to the ranch, either by relation or proximity. But there is something much bigger going on out there, and I hope we'll at least scratch a few surfaces of other things. Now as much as I want to go diving straight into our experiences of the basin, let's get the lay of the land here. It's important to understand exactly what makes this area so special, so without diving into the woo-woo just yet, we're going to talk about some of the details of Uinta's history, geology, and some other details that make the basin so unique. Instead of hearing me babble on and on for an hour or so all by my lonesome, I've invited Meg back to the Black Lodge to go over some of these broad strokes of the background. And we're going to get to that in one minute, right after this brief message from our friends over the Green Mushroom Podcast Network.
2: Hey there! Luxa here, host of Luxa Cult, a podcast where we gleefully taunt the mundane, butcher the Latin and most other languages, and also discuss variety of occult topics. Exploring the intersection of science, magic, art, and philosophy through the lens of chaos, it's occultism for everyone. Lexicult features interviews with badass authors, artists, and magicians of all walks and experience levels, as well as audiomantic nonsense, cut-up poetry, bibliomancy breaks, and so much more. Don't miss a special two-part episode where Dave and I talk about his path of druidry and go into some of the botany of the plants represented by the OM alphabet. Also, hear Dave read a guided meditation for the Green Mushroom Project, which is a large-scale group working focused on building connection and regaining ground that you can be a part of. You can hear call on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. So tune in and join us for the ride.
0: Meg, welcome back to the Black Lodge, which is uh, currently conveniently perhaps magically located in your basement for a brief spat how have you been
3: pretty good makes quite a convenient um commute
0: as it were i don't even have to open a portal for you you can just walk down the stairs
3: it's true it's true loudly just so i don't startle you all
0: right well before we start getting into the oddities of our own personal pilgrimage into this plethora of paranormal perplexity let's get the lay of the land here Nestled amidst the towering peaks of the Uinta Mountains in northern Utah is a 7,000 square mile area of land with elevations ranging from 5,000 to 10,000 feet above sea level, known as Ye Good Old Uinta Basin. And The basin is a vast and rugged landscape, and its history is diverse and captivating as its terrain. Marked by the passage of ancient civilizations, the arrival of European explorers, and the enduring presence of Native American tribes, along with the storied history shared through oral traditions, textbooks, and good old-fashioned research, the Uinta Basin is known for something else as well, being a consistently active paranormal hotspot. So much, in fact, that over the decades it has lured some of the most impressive scientific minds of the modern age into the research efforts to study the varied paranormal phenomena experienced in the basin. No, oh, I don't mean good old Skinwalker Ranch, which, by the way, love your sweatshirt right now. Yeah, yeah thanks. It's fantastic. She's actually wearing the Skinwalker Ranch hoodie uh, as we're recording this. But, no, I don't mean the ranch. I, I mean the entire basin. And that's actually kind of what prompted you and I to really do this trip, which mm-hmm. we'll get into in the next couple of episodes. But it's important to actually talk about the land itself because the land itself is a character of sorts in this. So let's give our oldest player a proper origin story here, and we'll start with what makes the land itself so special. The geological history of the Uinta Basin is a testament to the dynamic forces that have shaped the landscape over millions of years. Its diverse rock formations and structural features not only hold significant economic value, but also provide a window into the Earth's ancient past, contributing to our understanding of geological processes and the history of life on our planet.
3: Yeah, it's true. You can go touch some dinosaur bones.
0: That is cool. We're going to get into that a little bit later. And you you actually got to go, right?
3: Yeah, you guys were all still asleep, and I woke up at 6 a.m., so I drove to Dinosaur Monument National Park.
0: Yeah, we were up all night. Uh, looking for UFOs. and playing with fire. And, yeah, you know. You know, like you do. Uinta's geology is characterized by a series of interrelated rock formations that have been extensively studied by geologists. One of the most prominent features is the Uinta Mountain Group, a series of sedimentary rocks that formed during the Paleocene and Eocene epochs. Good job. Thank you. Approximately 65 to 55 million years ago. These rocks consist of sandstones, shales, and limestones that were deposited in ancient marine and fluvial environments, preserving a rich record of biological and environmental history. Another key geological feature of the basin is the Green River Formation. Were we close to that when we were down there? Uh,
3: that's a little farther north, I think. Okay. Yeah, that that little creek we were by was actually a, a drainage ditch that had been dug.
0: Oh, okay. All right. Back to the Green River Formation, which is famous for its abundance of oil shale and kerogen rich rocks. Look that one up. What what the hell is kerogen? Kerogen. Spell that for me. Uh, K-E-R-O-G-E-N.
3: A complex fossilized organic material found in oil shale and other sedimentary rock, which is insoluble in common organic solvents. Okay. Uh, Yields petroleum products when distilled.
0: The Green River Formation dates back to that Eocene epoch we mentioned earlier around 54 to 37 million years ago, and is renowned for its remarkable fossil assemblages, including well-preserved fish and plants, providing valuable insights into the ancient ecosystems of the region. and One of the most significant geological features of the Green River formation is the presence of extensive oil and natural gas reserves. In addition to those resources, the Uinta Basin is also known for its rich deposits of oil, shale, and tar sands. These unconventional energy sources represent a significant potential source of energy for the future. I, I would kind of debate on that given the movement of green energy now at this point. A lot of this was taken from a U.S. geological study from the 70s, which I'll have a link for that in the show notes if you're interested. I did, tried to update it as much as I can, but commentary like that, like oil shale and tar, like we're going to have to start moving away from that. It's just the way that it is.
3: Ironically, they're doing it at a glacial pace.
0: Yeah. <laughs> But at least they're finally doing it, you know. I, so, yay. Yay. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, the geology of the basin has made it a focal point for energy exploration and development, shaping the economy and infrastructure of the region. Including these formations, the Uinta Basin is also characterized by a series of anticlines and synclines, which are folds in the Earth's crust that have played a crucial role in accumulation and trapping of hydrocarbons the structural complexity has made the basin a prime target for oil and gas exploration and production. There's a whole lot in here about, you know, natural resources and like natural gas and oil and all of these things. And it kind of makes you wonder like if, if us like constantly disrupting the land is what's causing some of the strange phenomenon that's going on out there. And we're going to postulate way deeper on that a little bit later, later on, but Makes think, you know?
3: I wouldn't be surprised to hear similar <laughs> stories coming out of Canada with the oil shale deposit areas up there and the the Great White North area nobody's living in.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
3: you know, the, Was there the Valley of Death? That's in Canada, right?
0: I think so, yeah. yes. Yeah, it you want to go camping? I mean, uh, like you know me, I love the paranormal, but the uh, extreme conditions, that's the question. Oh, no,
3: part. no, you go in the summer. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. Sure. All right. Cool.
0: Why not? It reminds me. Did you ever see that movie, The Last Winter? Yes. Oh, yeah. See that? Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm thinking. That's what's happening. We're starting to crack open the earth, and now all the spirits of the dead are coming up and ghost you math. know, dinosaur ghosts. Oh God, I need to do that math. Yeah, you never took that into consideration, did you?
3: What if there's a T-Rex ghost in here right now? Hmm. Tiny little arms.
0: <laughs> Tiny little arms. <laughs> Oh, poor little guy. Anyway, the geological history of the Uinta Basin is also evident in its diverse landscape, which includes rugged mountains, deep canyons, and expansive desert plains. Now, you and I witnessed all of this. Yes. And it was kind of one of those moments that as you're rolling over the peak of the hill and then you start to drop down, you're like, oh, wow. Oh, wow. And then it parts and it's like... Oh wow!
3: Oh yeah, coming through Colorado when you get over that last nine thousand foot peak. What was it outside Steamboat?
0: Mm -hmm. Coming
3: down into the basin, the plain that turns into Uinta Basin. Oh shit, that was just beautiful.
0: Oh yeah, no, it was chef's kiss worthy. Absolutely, one hundred percent. The Uinta Mountains, which form the northern boundary of the basin, are a prominent geological feature that has been shaped by tectonic forces and er erosion, eroding, over millions of years. (laughs) The mountains are composed of ancient Precambrian and Paleozoic rocks, and they provide a stunning backdrop to the basin's natural beauty. The geological history of the Uinta Basin is a testament to the dynamic forces that have shaped the region over millions of years. From its ancient rock formations to its valuable energy sources, the geology of the basin continues to play a, a crucial role in shaping the landscape and the lives of those who call it home. The discovery of gilsonite, is it gilsonite or gilsonite? I think it's gilsonite. Gilsonite, a valuable mineral for waterproofing and other industrial applications, in the late 19th century spurred a wave of settlement in the Uinta Basin. Miners flocked to the region, and towns such as Vernal and Duchesny,
3: uh, I you know I never asked anyone how that was pronounced
0: Duchesne, <laughs> Dachens, Duchesne. Well, you know Duchesne.
3: I figure it's probably like uh, Versailles in Indiana.
0: Hmm. <laughs> Versailles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, mm, fair mm, enough. Mm. Now we went to Vernal, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Vernal
3: was the big town where we uh, chilled out with the the museums and stuff, and where um, mm-hmm. Jill had her hotel. Yeah. And then Fort Duchesne was where we bowled.
0: Do you remember the name of the, the place that we went for lunch that day? Great sandwiches.
3: The one in town or the one by the bowling alley? The one in town. Uh, no, but if you give me 20 minutes, I could find it.
0: Oh ah, well, well, I'll drop it in the show notes. So that kind of covers the uh, the basic backdrop of, of the history of the land uh, itself. Like I said, that is a character. And the reason that I wanted to kind of dig into that is... I've discussed this with you at at length, and we're going to get into it a little bit later on, that I do think that the unique makeup of the natural elements around there has a lot to do with the strange phenomena that is witnessed out there. Mm -hmm, Definitely. And you know what? On the speculative side of it, this could mean, like, think of how many toxic fumes and weird stuff is just being blown up around there. People, yes, could absolutely be hallucinating. And you know, this is one of the reasons that we decided to go out there ourselves.
3: Yeah, and it's. Uh,
0: I did not hallucinate. I can it's tell you true. that. Or at least, not unintentionally.
3: Yeah, very true. <laughs> but no, it's a uh, the the interesting geological history and future of the area is. Um, it makes it a very special place. Mm-hmm. Like it has a, I don't know how you know a certain Genesee It just feels different, and I've been all over the Southwest. You know, I've been to the Arizona and New Mexico and Moab and Colorado and like the whole area, but that there's just something specific about that area that feels so different.
0: Uh, agreed. And, and I, I think we all kind of had the same experience, especially those of us who had not been out there before. Um, like as me, Lisa and Todd, especially as soon as we stepped out of the car and we soaked in the desert desert sun For a a few minutes, it was just like, all right, a part of my brain is turning on and another part is turning off for the rest of this trip.
3: I'd like to have a test feature where we took somebody out there who and didn't tell them absolutely anything about the basin or Skinwalker or, like, anything. I want them to know absolutely nothing about this area Mm. and see if they also pick up on it. Because, you know, we're all primed to be like spooky you know
0: yeah but i mean that's kind of the point of of our troop being together is is like we trigger shit
3: well yeah but you i'd like to have a control group that also goes yeah it feels weird out here
0: all right so now that we've covered the land let's uh let's get into the other part of what kind of makes this land so well charged i guess and that's the human element of it Now, rather than just focusing on the modern interpretation of the basin's population history, I think it's important that we go a little bit further back. Uh, Maybe a lot back. Actually, like way, way, way back.
3: Get in the way back machine.
0: Oh, yeah, we're getting in the way back machine. (laughs) The basin is home to numerous archaeological sites that provide evidence of human habitation dating back to prehistoric times. Long before the Native American tribes and the arrival of European settlers, the Uinta Basin was home for a succession of ancient cultures. The Archaic Period, which was around uh, 8,000 to 1500 BC, saw the arrival of nomadic hunter-gatherers who subsided on the region's abundant wildlife and plants. They left behind a treasure trove of cultural puzzle pieces such as stone tools, rock arts, and other artifacts that provide glimpses into their lives and beliefs.
3: Just so everyone's aware, BC means before Common Era, mm-hmm. and not before Christ.
0: Yeah. So, what is the uh, what's the new term?
3: Yeah, BCE and CE. So it's before Common Era, okay. Common Era.
0: So what was what was common then? Uh, like like uh, one, one thousand. Second. Yeah. One second. <laughs> so
3: before and after, because it was uh, AD used to be what is it? Anno Domini, after Christ.
2: BC. Ominous, yeah, dominus. Yeah.
3: Exactly. During the Fremont period. From 1 to 500 A.D. or C.E., the basin witnessed the development of a more complex society. The Fremont people were semi-sedentary, living in villages and engaging in ad- agriculture and horticulture. They are known for their distinctive pottery, intricate basketry, and elaborate pit structures.
0: Elaborate pit structures. Hmm. Oh, you're thinking armpits rather than... Uh, I was thinking, like, you know, barbecue pits.
3: Maybe they just got really cool, like, braiding.
0: Wait, really cool what? Braiding. Braiding? Hair. Oh, good God. Has anybody grown armpit hair that long?
3: Yeah, definitely.
0: I don't think I want to see that.
3: I will not Google it for you.
0: Thank you. We're moving on. From 500 to 1300 AD, or CE if you prefer, the basin was inhabited by the ancestral Puebloans, which had migrated from the Mesa Verde region of Colorado. Great song, by the way. Huh? Great song. What? Mesa Verde. By who? By who?
3: Uh, that was a uh, perfect circle or Pussifer, I think.
0: Oh, ah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You and your Maynard obsession.
3: I'm not obsessed. I'm just very interested.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, they constructed impressive cliff dwellings and, uh, developed sophisticated agricultural techniques, including irrigation systems. Their presence in the basin is marked by a rich archeological record, including numerous ruins and artifacts. I would like to do a little bit more research on that and see exactly what there are, especially the ruins. I'm, I'm really interested in those those earlier civilizations because you hear a lot about like the the Native American tribes and, and the few generations that come before them. But you don't really get too much information about, you know, a thousand years before that. You know, obviously, they didn't keep records, so...
3: Um, Mesa Verde National Park has a lot of historical information about the pre Puebloan cultures.
0: Hmm. Okay.
3: Which is northern Colorado no, not northern Colorado. Um we stopped by on our drive across country. Not our drive, but my other drive. I'll have to remember where it's at. <laughs> add it to the list. I put add it out to the list. <laughs> uh, it's it's a uh, yeah, but it's out there. But there's a it's a huge national park. You can visit the um, cave homes. You can take a tour and like actually climb down into the the cave city, basically, and see the pit houses.
0: All right, yeah, we're we're going. <laughs> well, these Puebloans became the Native American tribes that inhabited the area, including the Ute, the Shoshone, and the Paiute people who relied on the basin's natural resources for sustenance. The tribes were the earliest known inhabitants, and all lived in the area for thousands of years, relying on the abundant natural resources for their sustenance. They hunted game, fished in the rivers and streams, and gathered plants for food and medicinal purposes. The basin was vital to their tradition, and they developed a deep spiritual and cultural connection to the area. The first Europeans to set eyes on the Uinta Basin were the Spanish explorers Silvestre Vélez de Escalante and Francisco Anastasio Dominguez in 1776. They were searching for a trade route between Santa Fe, New Mexico, and Monterey, California, and their expedition marked the beginning of the European contact with the Ute people.
3: In 1789, the Treaty of Peace was established between the Spanish and the Utes and the promise of Ute aid against the Comanche and the Navajos. This will be important later, as this essentially made the Utes enemies of the Navajo, as well as many other tribes, due to their practice of capturing women and children and then selling them to the European settlers as slaves.
0: Yeah, that's not going to end well for anybody, and uh, this does come back around on them. We'll, We'll talk about that a little bit later. The 1825-1827 to 1827 expeditions of William Ashley and his men brought the first non-Native explorers to the region, establishing the vast fur trade network. The fur trade brought in a wave of European trappers and traders to the region, leading to an increased interaction between the Native American tribes and newcomers. This period of exploration and trade laid the foundation for the eventual settlement of the area by European Americans. The basin also attracted mountain men... <laughs> god
3: my favorite type this
0: is just like half of the people in Asheville, man it's ridiculous
3: <laughs> no 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 those are hipsters
0: that, no you're absolutely right yeah mountain men the non-hipster type explorers and prospectors and we, yes we are definitely talking about the stereotypical gold prospectors them <laughs> <In> their hills <laughs> right seeking new opportunities among them was jim bridger a legendary figure in the american west who explored the region extensively You know, anytime I talk about this era of American history and exploration, my mind immediately goes to the Trapper (laughs) song from uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone's seminal classic, (laughs) Cannibal the Musical. And as a fun little side note about uh, Bridger, this guy was a character. Guy loved a good joke. As he got older, his stories of exploration and his retellings of them got wilder and wilder, like every time he told them. And eventually they just evolved into tall tales. And one of his favorites was telling people about his death. Check this out. <laughs> he had a habit of going to bars. And he, would, uh, you know, he was pretty well-known at this point in his life. So if he stuck around certain uh, trails and pathways, he could show up in any town. Like, ah, Jim Bridger, oh yeah, come on in, have a drink, tell us a story, right? So people would buy him a drink and say, what's the wildest story you got for us, Jim? And he said, all right, so there I was. I was out on the plains. I had nothing to hide behind. There were, there were no cacti. There were no trees. There were no holes. I had one path, and that was to the tiny little cut into the mesa wall. There was a tiny little passage that I thought maybe I could squeeze through there and escape all them. And so I go running. And I got this whole tribe of youths coming right after me. And I am running there, and I dig into this hole, and I crawl my way through, and it opens up to a passage. Every single one of these Indians, they just keep coming in. They come after me, and they all have me cornered. I have nowhere to go because the trail runs out, and it's just a stone wall. And he just stops talking. And whoever buys him the drink is just, like, leaning in, and suspense, like, Jim, so what happened? So what happened, Jim... They killed me. (laughs) And then he would chuckle, finish his drink, and go along.
3: I feel like that's something I'm going to do in about ten years.
0: You and me both, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I shouldn't have brought the trapping song up, because now I can't get it out of my head. (laughs) I can kill a helpless animal.
3: Well, I just have to pause so you can play it really quick and get it out of your brain.
0: Explorers and fur trappers continued to venture into the basin in search of new opportunities, and later in the 19th century, the area became a focal point for European and American settlement. In 1860, the Utes joined U.S. troops in a campaign against the Navajo. Here's where the supposed skinwalker curse comes into play, but we're going to come back to that a little bit later.
3: The progress of settlers slowly took land from the native tribes, and in 1861, the Uente Ore Ute Indian Reservation was established, encompassing much of the basin. The reservation has played a vital role in preserving Ute culture and traditions. In
0: 1880, several bands of the Ute tribes are relocated by the U.S. government onto the reservation surrounding Skinwalker Ranch. It's another interesting tidbit. We'll come back to that one later. Despite the challenges that they have faced, they have maintained their cultural identity and continue to make significant contributions to the Uinta Basin community. Their presence is a reminder of the region's rich history and the enduring connection between Native Americans and the land. During this time of exploration, the discovery of valuable natural resources such as oil, natural gas, and minerals drove further economic development into the Basin. The late 19th and early 20th centuries saw significant industrial growth as extraction industries, including mining and oil drilling, became prominent in the region. The discovery discovery of oil in the early 20th century in particular brought significant changes to the region. The development of the oil industry led to an influx of settlers and the establishment of towns and infrastructure to support the growing population. The extraction of oil and natural gas became a major economic driver for the area, shaping the landscape and the communities that emerge.
3: In addition to its natural resources, the basin has also played a significant role in the development of transportation networks. The construction of railways in the late 19th century, such as the Denver and Rio Grande Western Railroad, facilitated the transportation of goods and people in and out of the basin, further spurring economic growth.
0: Today, the basin continues to be a hub for resource extraction and energy production, as well as agriculture and outdoor recreation. Something right up your alley.
3: Awfully outdoorsy for somebody with half a heart.
0: Right. (laughs) The region's natural beauty, including the stunning Uinta Mountains and the Green River, continues to attract visitors and outdoor enthusiasts, offering opportunities for hiking, camping, fishing, hunting, and skiing, which is something I didn't really think about. I'll have to look into that at another time.
3: It snows in the winter.
0: hmm the region is home to numerous national parks, forests, and monuments, including, as we mentioned earlier, the Dinosaur National Monument, the Ashley National Forest, the Uinta Wasatch Cache National Forest, all of which illustrate the enduring relationship between humans and the natural environment. Have you been to all of those? I know you've been to Dinosaur National Monument.
3: I've been to Dinosaur National Monument and Ashley National Forest. Yeah. I didn't go this time, but on um, one of my other cross country trips, so I stopped. Huh. I didn't camp. I just kind of looked at the trees for a couple hours and then went on my merry way.
0: Well, I I think it's great that the they do so much to like preserve like the national park areas and and the reservation areas, but I gotta admit, it kind of stands in contrast to what they're doing to the rest of the land, right?
3: Well, you can thank uh, good old Theodore Roosevelt for most of that. Yeah, Teddy yeah. Roosevelt established the national park system with Yellowstone. I think was the first one
0: ah that's right because they went
3: out there and they were like look at this
0: shit," Mm -hmm.
2: and
3: they were like we got to protect this from people and then uh, they created it was was it 1920 maybe i think was the because the 100th anniversary of the nps was just a couple years ago and then it expanded let me look i gotta i want to know that i have that date right Nope, oh, nope, I was absolutely wrong. The act of March 1st, 1872, Congress established Yellowstone National Park in the territories of Montana and Wyoming.
0: Wow, that far ago? Well, mm. yeah, that was.
3: Oh, and then 1916, Woodrow Wilson signed the act creating the National Park Service. There are more than 400 NPS uh, serviced areas.
0: And I'm glad that we have them all. Me too. All right. <clears throat> From the Asian cultures that inhabited the region to the European settlers and the Ute people who have made it their home, the basin has been shaped by the stories of its inhabitants. As the region continues to evolve, its rich history and cultural heritage will remain an integral part of its identity. Now that we've covered the basics on the land itself and the people, it's time we take a look at the stranger elements of the basin. The things that inspired us to go there and see it ourselves. From the native tribes that inhabited the area to the settlers that arrived later, stories of high strangeness and paranormal phenomena have been documented for centuries before good old Skinwalker Ranch came around. And we'll get to that in just a moment, right after this brief message from our friends over at Small Town Monsters. Greetings, friends and fiends. This is Flood from the XV Planets podcast, and tonight I'm sitting down with Courtney Swihart and Aaron Deese from Small Town Monsters. Guys, thanks so much for joining us today, and why don't you tell us a little bit about what we can expect from Small Town Monsters in 2024, because it sounds like it's going to be a wicked good year.
1: So, um, for the start of the year here, February through March 2nd at 7 p.m., I believe, we are running our Kickstarter for 2024 titles, um, which is Lost Contact, On the Trail of Bigfoot, The Ancients, Dogman Territory and Cryptid Goatman with the bonus stretch goal of uh, Okapogo, the creature of Lake Okanagan.
0: Okanagan?
1: I Okanagan.
0: Cur- cursed Waters, creature of Lake Okanagan.
1: Yes. And then we have um, Monster Fest coming in June 28th and 29th here in Canton, Ohio, where you can come meet some of your favorite podcasters. Two of which are right here on the stream with me today. Oh, and then, <laughs> we also have um, books coming out, including Hunting Grounds by Mr. Aaron Deese. Yes. We have Unexplained TV coming this spring, which hopefully you will find on your favorite uh, streaming service here very quick as its own channel, and podcasts, movies, series, and so much more
0: as we have come to expect from our wonderful Small Town Monsters crew. Now, don't forget to check out the XV Planets podcast feed on March 7th, 2024, for an extended interview with Courtney and Aaron here. Guys, thanks again so much for popping in, and I will see you all in July. So I know everybody wants us to talk about Skinwalker Ranch. Ooh. Ooh, yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're going to touch on that just a, a wee bit, and we'll touch on it a little bit more a little bit later in this series. But at this point... Shouldn't you all have like Skinwalker Overload? Everybody is just beating this into the ground, and and um, now you have the show Secret of Skinwalker Ranch, which you know, I'll get to that in a minute. So before we start talking about that, let's talk about some of the other paranormal phenomenon that's already been established there long before Skinwalker came around, and the most important one, obviously, would be the Skinwalker. I'm just going to go over here to an article that I picked up from Robert Lamb and Desiree Brown from over at HowStuffWorks.com. And, you know, normally I'd go with other sources, but I found this one to be like a really nice comprehensive overview that pretty much taps into everything that I've learned about it. I switched things up a little bit and added things that they were unaware of. But, originating from Navajo folklore, a skinwalker is a malevolent witch capable of transforming into, possessing, or disguising themselves as an animal skinwalkers go by different names in different Native American tribes. The Navajo version is called Ye Nadalushi. Does that look right for the pronunciation? Mm, Ye
3: Yeah, I think yeah. that's right.
0: Which translate to, with it, he goes on all fours. I like that. That's, <laughs> that's kind of creepy. Make a t-shirt out of that. Yeah,
3: yeah we could, definitely. Absolutely.
0: A person becomes a skinwalker by committing a heinous act, like killing a family member. This gives them supernatural powers, allowing them to shapeshift from a human to an animal form at will. They often become coyotes, wolves, foxes, or bears, and they can transition into any animal. Oh my god, is that what Berald was?
3: Skinwalker Berald.
0: Oh, for more information on Berald, refer to the Patreon episode, The moon People.
3: Oh, also I need to put this on here. Um, if you go out to the area, the Navajo refer to themselves as the Diné. Then no one ever, do not ever, ever, ever ask anyone about skinwalkers because they will, they do not want to talk about it. They do not mention the word. It is not a thing that you do out there. it That will close a hundred doors more than it will open.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in Navajo society, skinwalkers are blamed for everything that went wrong. Crop failures, bad marriages, sicknesses, sudden death, you name it. Uh, unlike Greek myths or a demon from medieval literature, creatures from which vibrant beliefs have long subsided and whose attributes are readily catalogued and canonized in Western tomes, the skinwalker does not reside in text. Uh, skinwalkers are said to wear the skin of the animal they want to become, hence the name skinwalker, which depends on the needs of the task that they want to perform. They might become a bear to have an immense strength or just be really cuddly at a campsite with a couple of curious people. Eating a sugar plate. eating yeah, a sugar plate. Note that skinwalkers voluntarily assume this role. It's not a curse like being a werewolf. They yeah. do this themselves.
3: Wouldn't it suck every time you put on a leather coat, you'd turn into a cow? Oh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that, um
3: really cuts down on your clothing It'd be options. it awkward
0: at parties, that's for sure. I bet <laughs> they
3: were super happy when synthetic materials were created.
0: <laughs> oh, God. Skinwalkers can also read people... What, wait, what would they turn into with that, though? Just a pile of vinyl?
3: No, but think about it. Like, if all of your clothing options come from animal skins and you're a skinwalker, there's no way to, like, put on pants without, like, turning into a fox or a bear or, like, a buffalo. Mm. You just have to walk around Winnie the poo in it.
0: You'd have to be under constant scrutiny from PETA. You're under danger of having red pants. Exactly. Thrown so on you, all you know, day, as soon day. as
3: like uh, what, elastine or um, you know, a varicose. You're mm-hmm. good. You, you can finally yeah. um skinwalkers can finally own pants.
0: Huh. Interesting thought. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So back to skinwalkers. <laughs> Sorry. No, you're good. <laughs> no, that's 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 radio gold right there uh skinwalkers can also read people's minds apparently and control the animals of the night like owls call up spirits of the dead inflict pain almost impossible to catch and get rid of they must continue to kill or they'll die now that's an interesting bit that i hadn't heard of until i read this article it has vampiric overtones
3: so to it. The way I read it, and obviously I could be wrong um, in any of my folklore classes, was that the way you became a skinwalker was, you know, doing that ultimate evil act. Mm. But the magic, that's like a charging a phone, right? That magic eventually starts to run out and you have to keep recharging it or you stop.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, according to legend, you can tell if you're in the presence of a skinwalker by their eyes. If you shine a light on one when they're in animal form... Their eyes glow bright red. In human form, their eyes seem animal-like. Should we do an eye inspection? On me? Or both of us? Uh, I think we're good. Okay. To get rid of a skinwalker, you need a powerful shaman who knows the right spells and incantations to get the skinwalker to turn on itself. You can also shoot the witch with bullets dipped in white ash, but the shot must hit them in the neck or the hand. Like neck, I get, but the hand. It just seems...
3: The hands the part that does the magic.
0: Oh, okay. All right. But does it matter if you're right or left-handed? I might. Do you have to get both?
3: Ooh, that'd mm, be a hard shot.
0: Right. In his 1944 book, Navajo Witchcraft, noted anthropologist Clyde Kluckon explored magical traditions of contemporary Navajo people. Specifically, in his book, he examined the influencing of events by supernatural techniques that are socially disapproved. I mean, are you, are you trying to make me feel guilty for doing a little chaos magic? That's just...
3: I don't think you're trying to affect world events when you do that, though.
0: No, no. no. Okay. Well, I don't know, Sometimes. But nothing. Okay. Nothing heinous. <laughs> I promise.
3: How do you define heinous?
0: Okay, moving on. The author noted that English language translations like witchcraft are useful shorthand in this case, but they're not perfect. You can draw similarities between real or imagined European witches and skinwalkers, but the Navajo spirit world is undoubtedly unique. Based on his interviews with Navajo people, Pluckon pieced together general descriptions of the various forms of witchcraft that existed within the Navajo legend. He described skinwalkers as secret witches, mostly male, some female, who creep out in the night and take form of swift-moving animals like the wolf or coyote. They are said to gather in foreboding places and work dark magic against their victims, and engage in various taboo rituals of incest, corp defilement, and sibling moida.
3: That reminds me of uh, black metal,
0: Navajo black metal.
3: No, just black metal in general.
0: Yeah. Right. <laughs> so moving on from that, that uh, that's that's a major base on a lot of the more physical phenomenon that you hear about happening in the uinta basin people do see these cryptids a lot reports of this have really gone back for centuries but what's getting more interesting is now we're having this modern wave of it happen and uh, is it skinwalker is it dogman i don't know but i will tell you one thing apparently the week leading up to our trip Several locals reported seeing a large dogman-like creature with glowing red eyes on three separate occasions. Do you remember her telling us about I that? I do.
3: She, she told us that on the ATV tour, right? Yeah. Yep.
0: Yeah. Uh, more about all of that in the upcoming weeks, I promise. The other bit of phenomenon to discuss here is UFOs, which is another prominent phenomenon that's, that occurs in the basin on, on the regular. And we might have seen a few. Mm-hmm. Uh, might have captured a few. We'll, we'll talk about those as well. But reports of that, yet again, go back at at least a century. I mean, there were reports back in, oh yeah, in the late 1800s of people seeing um, discs, glowing orbs rising up and over the mountain and moving along. So this stuff has been around here for a while. The UFO aspect, I wonder if that would actually correlate, though, with us cracking into the earth. Because they always say, don't dig there. So... When we started harvesting for natural resources, did we stir something up? And is that why we're seeing the phenomena in the sky?
3: Maybe, but I think there are reports of like aerial phenomenon in that area that go back way farther than like the stuff we're going to find researching. Yeah. Um, just like the general reports, you usually find mid to late eighteen hundreds. But I, I, I know if I went there myself and got access to newspaper archives and like had like a month to just sit and research, I could probably find some going farther back.
0: We'll get there one day. Absolutely, we will. (laughs) I mean,
3: the same thing happened with Brown Mountain. Like, there are reports going back up into, like, the mid-1700s of lights.
0: Oh, yeah. We were able to find quite a bit of those. Like, that Mm -hmm. was a little bit easier to find. The stuff in Uinta might be a little bit more challenging.
3: More access to European Americans at Brown Mountain than there was at Uinta for hundreds of years.
0: Very, very true. Uh, Another little Piece of folklore slash uh, cryptid mythology for the area is the Beast of Bottle Hollow. Have you heard about this one?
3: I didn't actually. Yeah. Okay,
0: so I can't remember like all of the details of this story, but apparently, uh, Bottle Hollow, you know, a big lake. Apparently, there is a big old beastie that uh, lives in.
3: in oh, Jill did tell us about yeah, this. Yeah. Yes, I do remember and that. There now. was
0: a group of people who went out there and went swimming uh, one night and. Uh, one of them swam off into the middle of the lake, and then after a few minutes, they started yelping and saying that something was pulling at them. And the other two witnesses tried to approach, and they saw this giant mass move in the water, move right underneath her, and she just got pulled down and never came back up. That is not the first nor the last time that the Beast of uh, of Bottle has been mentioned. It's uh, just recently actually came up. If I can find a link for this, I'll stick it in the show notes. But somebody recently posted a video where they saw, supposedly saw, like the dark shadow of the beast. So this is another part of local folklore that just seems to be piling on into like a hero sandwich level of variety for protein. You get all of it. You are getting cryptids. You are getting UFOs. You do get poltergeist activity. So there is definitely some strange stuff going on out there. That, of course, always brings us back around to what it's now become famous for, the old Skinwalker Ranch. Again, this has been done to death on every paranormal podcast, and there is simply no new information at the moment. If if you're already a fan of this subject, then you already have all of the info. So rather than doing a whole thing, here's a recap from then to now. In 1937, the land is purchased and assemblage is put up by the Myers family. From 1940 to 1960, Pat Stringham reports both UFO and Skinwalker activity. Now, Pat Stringham, I'm not sure if he actually lived on the property, but he was definitely within that area. In 1979, the Arnold family witness a UFO craft. In 1992, the Sherman family acquires the ranch from Garth Myers, and Garth Myers that was the family okay so it was in the Myers family the whole time i believe that the Myers family are the ones who installed all of the locks on the kitchen cabinets. The second
3: Myers family, because yes. it was Myers Arnold Myers. Okay. However, I think the Myers family and the Arnold's family are somewhat related. Mm. That's very common in that area for families to inherit land after somebody else dies, because it's all considered part of the reservation, and you cannot own it unless you are attached to the reservation. Some, right. Some okay. Part. So what happens is you. You kick off this mortal coil with no known relatives or no known, like, people that inherit, like, direct inheritances. They will find somebody that is, like, you know, several steps out related to you that it goes to. Okay. So, if I had to guess, I would say the Myers family and the Arnold family are marginally related.
0: So, in 92, the Sherman family. All right. Now, first of all, let's step back to uh, the the Myers family having the locks on the cabinets. This Mm -hmm. is one of my favorite stories. Now, the reason that's important, and that's how we'll lead into, in 1992, the Sherman family acquires the ranch from Garth Myers. And that's when all of the activity that Skinwalker is known for starts to become documented and, and the coverage on this really begins. The locks on the cabinets didn't make any sense to the Shermans when they first bought the place. Because it didn't, like, it just seemed like overkill. You have latches and locks on both the inside and the outside of almost every openable surface in the entire house. This comes into play about three months after they've been there when Mrs. Sherman comes home from town after making a huge haul to pick up supplies and groceries, carries all the groceries inside, locks the door, proceeds to put all of the groceries into the pantry, closes all of the doors steps out of the room to go to the bathroom, comes back in, so this is maybe a minute and a half, two minutes. All of the the groceries that she brought in are now pulled out from the cabinets and neatly placed right back on the table where she had set them when she brought them in. I love that little piece of information because that's when it starts to go off into even stranger territory. You start getting poltergeist activity whenever the Shermans show up. So now you really do have the full, like, Neapolitan paranormal ice cream treat. <laughs>
3: I think my favorite story is the um the wolf came out and like like the large wolf and they were all out in the yard and it was like staring at them and then it just like grabbed a calf and tried to drag it off. Mhm. Like they were, you know, and when it got shot at, they were like it was confused. Mhm. Like you brought me these treats and now you're shooting at me?
0: Well, even before that, this that wolf walked up to them and they pet it. It mm-hmm. walked up to them behaving very very docile. Like very friendly. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then just yeah, as you said, like saunters on over to the cage and grabs a calf. And they shoot him, and yeah, the wolf just kind of turns its head, and, and then proceeds to go back to trying to tug the tame thing. <laughs> Shoots him two or three more times, I think, and and dog never, or, you know, the wolf never yelps, never runs away. Instead, it just kind of sneers at him, and then just slowly walks off. And that's that's just wild. So. You start with that, you start with the poltergeist activity, there's the instance where uh, one of the herd of his cows all disappear, and they discover them all neatly packed asleep in a storage container, locked from the outside... No clue how it happened.
3: Apparently, they were packed in there like sardines, too. Like, it was not like a loose assemblage of cattle. Like, they were packed into the storage container. Yeah. Like, I cannot imagine. I don't spend a lot of time around cows, but they don't really like super-contained spaces. So, I can't imagine, like, leading cows into a storage container in that number.
0: And lulling them to sleep? Yeah, exactly. Like, that's just
3: like, it doesn't make any sense.
0: And then there was the incident with the dogs, the poor dogs, where... Uh, so for, for months, uh, Mr. Sherman had been witnessing these orbs of various colors and textures.
3: And intensities.
0: Yes. And I, if I remember correctly, and, and please feel free to call and yell about me. By the way, we'll have a number at the end of the show if you want to leave us a voicemail. Uh, so if you want to angry correct us on some of this, but... Um, Sherman seemed to imply that different color orbs seemed to have different levels of intent. And I want to say it was the blue ones that looked like it was liquid boiling inside were the ones that were not friendly. Yes. They were antagonistic and he got really sick of it one night. And eventually, like the dogs are barking. He shoots his gun off a couple of times just to try to scare these things away. And finally he's like, screw it, boys, go get them. And his three blue healers go running off after this orb. And they go running off into the woods. And, you know, the light dims, orb kind of goes out of sight. And then there's this big flash of light and a loud boom. And if I remember correctly, a yelp. Yep. Yep. And, uh, you know, Sherman, he was like, "I'm I'm not going out there tonight. I'm just not doing it. So the next morning, he goes out there and he goes to the area that he th- saw them run. to. Oh, he to. followed the tracks. Yeah, oh, you yeah, did. Okay. Tracks.
3: Yeah, it's. I mean, it's dusty-ish. You could follow tracks.
0: And it was just three grease spots. Grease spots. So gross. Yeah. So sad.
3: Imagine being alive in the eighties when you could shoot a gun off and no one would mo- no one would bother you about it.
0: Now, eventually, this activity got to be too much for uh, for Tom. I-, I think Tom was his... Sherman is his real last name, and I think Tom was his pseudonym first name, but, you know, y'all know who I mean. Uh, This got to be too much for him, and eventually he put out an ad in the paper, basically saying, like, somebody please help me. I don't understand what's going on out of this ranch. Like, it's costing me money. My life is falling apart. Somebody please come out and help. That started to put it on the radar of a lot of people, some pretty prominent people. But before it got to the prominent people, there was one story that I... I want to share because I, I absolutely love this word had gotten around that, the uh, you know, the Sherman ranch had some weird activity and strange stuff going on to it. And so this, this hippie guy shows up <laughs> and like shows up at the, the end of their driveway. And like, Hey, can I come and talk to you? Guy walks on and said, Hey, I heard that this is a magical place and I would really like to meditate on your property if you don't mind. And, Tom kind of looks at his son. They look at each other, and they're like, "All right." <laughs> so they let this guy go, and and he he meditates. And I I don't remember all of the details, but he's sitting there meditating. Sherman and his son are standing off in the distance, watching, and they see like this blur moving on the horizon, kind of like a heat mirage, and it starts darting back and forth and getting closer and closer. And eventually runs up to this guy who's meditating and like described it as like a force of wind. Like you could tell it somebody would just rushed up to you and then like breathes into his face. And this hippie guy just starts screaming and it like, ah! takes off running total Scooby-Doo way, like Shaggy and Scooby are running off. Proceeds to run over to, to Sherman, who's a pretty big guy. And leaps into his arms and starts, <laughs> like, just sobbing and crying. And uh, I, I just, I, I wish I could have been there to see that. Because at that point, the Shermans were like, I mean, this sucks, but we're used to it. Yeah.
3: Do You know, when you tell that story, the only thing I can see in my mind's eye is these two, like, rough country boys and hats, like, standing there with their arms crossed. Just right. staring down this hippie while he's meditating. <laughs>
0: I would have liked to have think that that would have been like a really great father-son bonding moment. Like, hey, Dad? Yes, son? How long you think until he pisses his pants?
3: (laughs) About 15 more minutes, I'd say.
0: I'm banking more on more like 90 seconds. You see that? (laughs) (laughs) That That'd be great. Uh, As I said, it it definitely attracted some strange people, uh, but it did attract some very prominent people, and that main prominent person is my man, to a certain extent, unless we start talking about American politics, (laughs) Robert Bigelow. Robert Bigelow reaches out to Sherman and ends up acquiring the property. Now, this is a guy I want to talk about for a minute, because this whole era is one of the reasons that I'm so fascinated with the paranormal as a whole. And I'll talk about this a little bit more at the end. But yeah, what about Bob? Let's talk about Bob.
3: You know, I'd really like to know what he had to do to acquire that land.
0: Uh, paid him for it.
3: Well, I know he bought it, but the Ute tribe has to approve the purchase, right? So, because it's on tribal land.
0: Well, you know, as you described earlier, there's a lot of strange inner workings there that mm-hmm. we don't fully understand. Yeah, and, so, so I'm
3: so like, I would like to know. I'm what?
0: pretty sure contributions to yeah, the Ute yeah, yeah. would probably be a big way to. I'm go. I'm sure I could
3: re- I could get some research in on that, but like,
0: we'll come back to it. We'll yeah. come back to it. So this this guy. Robert Bigelow, he made his fortune. Uh, it was a budget in suites, right? I, I think, think so. that was his. Yeah. yeah. So um, that was his business. He built budget ends, became a billionaire off of that, and throughout his life, has pretty much used the vast majority of his fortune to fund cutting edge sciences and pursuit of the paranormal in, in a. Kind of a more grounded sense.
3: He's just a weird little guy that likes the paranormal and science.
0: Yeah, he is a weird... Li- and a, un- unfortunately, some Florida governors. But we're not going to talk about that. I'm going to leave that out of it. I don't you know, don't want to scare off our listeners.
3: You don't become a billionaire by...
0: Uh, I, I know, I know. Capitalism. Texas. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I, so, yeah. Anyway. So Robert Bigelow has all of this uh, disposable income. And he... He buys the ranch, and he establishes the National Institute for Discovery Sciences, NIDS. People just absolutely love their acronyms. Um, NIDS also came along with a kind of a sister program called BASS. Bigelow Aerospace is basically what it stands for. Anyway, so NIDS and BASS kind of both worked on Skinwalker Ranch in various capacities. And from 1996 until 2013, they worked on Skinwalker Ranch relentlessly. Oh, when they could. They left during the winters because it was too cold to do any research. But during the springs, summers, and falls, they would be there doing hardcore scientific data research into the phenomenon that's going on in the ranch. Now, this is where it gets really fascinating because this is also where it becomes involved with the government and becomes kind of the controversy of a lot of conspiracy and stuff like that. We're not going to touch on that too much because, again, this has been done to death, so you guys know where the data is. Go and read it yourself. I'm not going to rehash over the whole thing here because I want to point out the more important thing about all this, okay? Robert Bigelow buys this place, starts NIDS, starts Bass from 1996 to 2013, owns Skinwalker Ranch, and proceeds with all of these experiments, and all of these studies, and all of this research. In 2015, the Bigelow activities on Skinwalker Ranch conclude, and the team leaves, and ownership is passed off elsewhere. Bigelow proceeds to shut down NIDS and Bass, dissolve the companies, parting some of it out to contractors, some of it to private institutions, and then he proceeds to open the Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies. Can you see the flow of interest here? <laughs> you see where I'm going mm-hmm. with this? And consciousness is going to end up playing a pretty large part in how I view our investigation the things that we did out there. And some of my newer theories that have developed since our experiences in Uinta Basin. Now, in 2016, Adamantium Real Estate By Skinwalker Ranch from Robert Bigelow. This would be the uh, infamous uh, Brandon Fugle, or Fugel, Fugel, Fugel. I think, yeah. The infamous Brandon Fugel, I believe, and Adamantium. He really is a nerd.
3: Yeah, I mean, Hmm. of course he's a nerd.
0: That's part of the reason that I like him. Well, sometimes. In 2019, the History Channel and Prometheus Entertainment began filming *The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch*. And uh, during that year, Candace Lynn and Tom Lewis become caretakers of Skinwalker Ranch. In 2020, the premiere of the series airs on the History Channel, and here we are.
3: Here I am in the sweater.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, at least, yeah, here we are for now. Uh, We're not really going to hear too much uh, else about Skinwalker Ranch for the future other than what we get off of that television show because everything else that is uh, wrapped up within research at Skinwalker Ranch from the Bigelow days is either still classified or they're holding on to it for one reason or another. It got
3: transferred over to Bix.
0: (laughs) We're going to have to do a deep dive into Bix. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
3: I search them quite often for job openings.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's pretty much it, or at least the end of this episode and and our brief history on Uinta Basin. I'll be delivering my updated hypothesis on the paranormal, the whole of it, all of it at the end of this series. You know, as a good friend of the show often says, everything is connected. Megan, thanks again for hanging out with me tonight to talk about some of the broader strokes of the land's history, people, and potential aliens. We'll hear from you again in two weeks when we gather the troops to discuss our experiences in the desert.
3: Ooh. Ooh. In the basin.
0: Where's my theremin? I don't
3: know, I don't know. but I'll, I'll, send you, I'll send you some of those pictures so you can throw them on social media that I took, like the lightning and the mesa and
0: Yeah, absolutely. We'll have some pretty impressive visual uh, elements for all of you to see as this story unfolds. So that being said, welcome back to season four of XV Planis. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Join us again in two weeks for the next installment on our Uinta series, where we'll discuss the first half of our boots on the ground investigation. And don't forget to tune in on March 7th for a special bonus episode where I'll be hanging out with Courtney Swihart and Aaron Deese of Small Town Monsters to hear about all the exciting things your favorite documentary production team is up to this year. In the meantime, if you're craving more XV Planets, consider donating to our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash xvplanets, where you'll gain access to our exclusive content. There's a whole other separate series on there, as well as extended interviews, exclusive episodes with special guests, and much more. There will be two new additions to the Patreon exclusive series, Transmissions from the Void, coming in the next two weeks, as well as nearly six hours of uncut interviews from the field team just from this investigation alone. A sincere thank you to all subscribers who support the show and donate to the Patreon. You are amazing, and I can't express just how much every little bit helps to make this show happen a little bit easier. Don't forget to follow us on Blue Sky, Twitter, Instagram, threads, Facebook, everywhere as XV Plan is. Oh, hey, we set up a Google Voice account, 770-410-8385. So if you want to call us, leave us a voicemail, send us a message, knock yourselves out. If you like what we do here, head on over to iTunes or Spotify to rate and especially review us. And tell your friends about us. Tell your families about us. Hell, yell at random people in the election lines about us. We are a DIY independent production, and the only way that we will grow is by you sharing us with others who might enjoy taking this trip down many a rabbit hole with us. Be sure to check out all the great shows on the Green Mushroom Podcast Network, like Lux Occult, Unearthing Paranormalcy, and more. You can check them out by going to www.greenmushroomproject.com and add that to your bookmarks to keep up with the network in the future. If you're a fan of this show, you'll likely be fond of many of the series you'll find there, as well as some pretty epic crossovers of XV Planus with other podcasts. This show is produced in the Black Lodge, wherever that resides in this moment of time and space, and is written, edited, and scored by yours truly. Music from the show can be found on my Bandcamp page for Folds and Floods or anywhere you stream your music. No part of this show or its music may be reproduced without consent. Copyright Folds and Floods Productions. Once again, I am your host, Flood, and this has been XV Planis. Thank you for being a part of the journey so far. I'll see you in the between, in Abumbratio, in Fluctus, Subvelo.